Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Today, we're going to hear from Brandy Collins Dexter, the author of the new book, Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. Brandy is both an academic and a civil rights activist in the fight for media and tech justice, and her book is a roller coaster ride through these issues to culture and music and politics. Part media and cultural criticism, part memoir, and part warning, the book takes us to the fringes of black communities and tries to make sense of our political moment. Here's Brandy. My name is Brandy Collins Dexter. I am the Associate Research Director at the Tech and Social Change Project at Harvard and also author of the book Black Skinhead. So we're going to talk a little bit about this book today, which has everything, politics, wrestling, football, road trips, music, just about everything you could possibly imagine. I think before we start that, though, um, I'd like to just start a little bit with you and who you are. You start this book with an introduction that focuses on your father and your experience with him throughout your life and also his illness. Can you kind of start us there? This book seems like it's you know, important to you, not just intellectually, of course, but it's also a very personal exploration of your identity and experience. It's actually kind of funny because I didn't intend to get quite so personal with the book. And so the premise of it, it's a collection of essays that draw from a number of different spaces. Um, But as part of that, I interviewed Black voters between the ages of 18 and 108 of all different political identities that I could find. And my parents were kind of meant to be some of those interviews, right? Because it's like the easy, you know, it's easy to like ask your friends and family and kind of expand from there. And so I'd spent like, uh, you know, several hours with my dad in the summer of 2020, interviewing him and talking to him about his life and how his life shaped his politics. And then as I was going into the writing in fall of 2020, he fell unexpectedly ill. He had a surgery that he didn't necessarily need to get in 2020, but they they pushed it for various reasons and the surgery didn't turn out well. So he was declining from a health standpoint. And I found myself thinking about how many times I told him I was going to write the story of his life and finding myself running out of time to do that. So I actually stopped. I was in the middle of writing, you mentioned wrestling. I was in the middle of writing the essay that would become the one on wrestling and populism. And I stopped it to write the story of his life so that I could try to read it to him before he died. And I didn't fully get there. He was in hospice when I read him what became the prologue, but I kind of didn't intend to put it in the book and I needed to submit some writing to my publishers. And so I sort of submitted it to buy time. And they were like, you have to include this. And I went through a lot of hand wringing around whether or not to do that. And then I realized that ultimately why I wanted to include that is because there's so many different Easter eggs in it that cues up the themes that I'll talk about throughout the book. So his story is this about the pursuit of the American dream as we understand it. Um, despite all the odds and things working against him. And then the way in which that taught me, you know, sort of my politic. And so, you know, doing that did a couple of things. One, it introduces 
um, you to me, to my family, where I come from, how the personal is political. But then also just from a practical standpoint, kind of like once I did that, the gloves were off. Like there was no place that I was afraid to go to throughout the book. And so like I was able to be more fearless with my writing because of it. In some ways, you are an activist and intellectual. Uh, You have led a bunch of campaigns that people are probably aware of, even if they're not aware of your own attachment to them. Uh, (laughs) Accountability for uh, Fox News, uh, Mm -hmm. the push to get R. Kelly uh, dropped from RCA for uh, his behavior, net neutrality, Mm -hmm. um, efforts against hate groups, et cetera. Is this book in some ways a kind of retrospective intellectual scaffolding for some of that work? Is that one way to see it? It's interesting you ask that question. I I mean, I think it is. As I was writing it and my husband was reading different parts of it, he kept saying, this is a philosophy book. And I was really offended by that because I like, I hate philosophy, to be honest. And I, I find philosophy, well, hate philosophy is kind of like a weird way to say that, but it always just feels like really like up in the air to me. It doesn't feel tangible or concrete. And so I kind of resisted that idea. I thought of it more as kind of like a pop history of media justice almost. But like what I realized is that I started out wanting to write a story around misinformation and misinformation and the tech economy and all of the things that happen when we lose physical space and place. And then we try to reconstruct our communities online with strangers. Like, what does that mean? What do we lose? And what I realized is I couldn't get to that story of modern technology without telling the story of like how we got here and really showing in all of the big and small ways what we've lost as people. And even though I focus that through the lens of like the black experience, I think that there's a lot of aspects of it that feel universal. And my hope is that as people read it, they'll think of, you know, spaces that they've lost and what that's meant for how they engage politically now. So, I I mean, I do think it's like all of those things you said, whether I wanted it to be or not, but I, I found so much of the work that we've done together and the work that I've done in my life as being interconnected in this big way. And so I'm trying to like make sense of all of those different pit stops. So let's get into some of the ideas. You spend the first part of the book kind of pondering how the reaction to Barack Obama uh, resulted in, of course, the election of Donald Trump and looking at somewhat at the narratives between Trump, between Biden, uh, you know, of course, who was the alternative to another four years of Donald Trump. You know that in some ways their rhetoric is not that different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like that's maybe a way into talking about, you know, what the kind of core of this book is about. I think there's tensions in the book that reflect tensions for me as well. And that's, you know, the difference between a nostalgia for days gone by and then what does it mean to imagine a future beyond Uh, some of the most darkest and traumatic experiences that we're having right now. And so, you know, what I, what I feel like, certainly what I felt like on election day in 2020 and the run up to that was that you had both of these candidates, you know, president Biden, then president Trump talking about restoring things to the past. And, you know, Trump kind of did that through this, like make America great, keep America great again, phrase that has a lot of 
historical connotations to it stemming back to the KKK and others. But like Biden is also drawing from this like nostalgic era of days gone by. And what neither one of them is talking about is to the extent that that nostalgia was real. It was made possible through big government, through regulation. It was made possible through you know, sort of the New Deal policies that came into play and um, how that secured trade, how that, you know, created certain possibilities um, for access to the middle class, you know, how labor was built, how unions were built, and how all of those things have been unwound, you know, frankly, by both parties in different iterations. And so this idea that we could go back to like, leave it to Beaver without having, you know, uh, concrete economic policies is not real. Moreover, it's not desirable for a lot of people for whom the past represents a certain amount of trauma and hurt and being told that we are not part of this kind of like American fabric, American dream. And so that's that's like part of what I'm trying to like delve into there and, and also finding where are the places where we should allow ourselves to look nostalgically upon things that we once had and where do we have to like leave those things behind in order to have a future that's inclusive for all of us. So I want to talk a little bit about just the concept of a black skinhead and you define the book uh, pretty early on, you offer sort of three definitions, but it might be useful uh, for the listener just to kind of hear it in your words. Why did you call this book black skinhead apart from the Kanye West reference, which we'll get into. Um, But (laughs) what does the term mean to you? So some of this more or less starts when I lived in the UK for a couple of years um, in the 2000s. And this movie came out that was called This is England. And it was about the rise of the skinheads as a subculture. And, um, you know, through my work with Yulon Grant, who's one of my researchers on the book, I unpacked more the the history of the skinhead, which I wasn't aware of. So it's like the first kind of like multicultural subculture in the UK after World War II. So after everything gets bombed, there's mass loss of spaces, you know, loss of labor, all of these things. And so the UK brought in or England brought in like people from their sort of colonized countries. So like Jamaica, Trinidad, others places, put them on boats, brought them to London to try to rebuild London. And so this country, England, that had been quite monolithic culturally in a lot of ways, was suddenly confronted with what to do with this question of multiculturalism, particularly in the context of economic struggle. And so like the skinhead subculture is like this working class subculture of like Black, Asian, white youth in the UK coming together around like ska music, soul music, rock steady, creating their own aesthetic that's based on the practicalities of, you know, having to go workplaces and wear um, combat boots or having to keep their hair low instead of long, as most people were in the 60s. And so they create this unique subculture. And then over time, because of like the economic strife and a number of other things, nationalism and this idea of who gets to define nationalism, it starts to fall apart. And what emerges from that are white skinheads and what we today most associate many of us with skinheads, which are like neo-Nazis. And so I was playing around with this question of like, what does it mean to define America as this like sort of monolithic identity in some ways with these different set of values when there's so many different cultures embedded within that? And then how does like economic loss and the zero sum narrative hinder 
our ability to actually have this like sort of universal identity. So instead of thinking of like white skinheads, neo-Nazis, like what is that looking like with black people in this country? So when you start to unpack this disillusionment and perhaps populism and Mm -hmm. some of the other forces that are at play here, uh, you arrive at a kind of canary in the coal mine, Kanye West. Um, So perhaps, you know, somewhat distinct from Barack Obama, of course, but two men from Chicago, um, influential uh, in their own own way, and yet very different visions of America. How does Kanye play into this book? Yeah. So I like prattled on, right? And I should give my, so to shorthand what the previous question you asked. So Black skinheads are disillusioned outliers who feel like they are not represented as voters or as a political base within mainstream definitions and understanding of Black voters. So like really talking about how Black people are understood to be like capital D, staunch Democrats, no matter what, and that like leads first And then who are all the people for whom that doesn't feel true, that feel let down by the Democratic Party, that feel underrepresented in in mainstream spaces? And so that's what takes me to this kind of like idea of the black skinhead. And how I view Kanye within that is I define him as essentially a late stage black skinhead. So if the idea of uh, what animates a black skinhead or a skinhead is feeling like you've lost space and place in society and people don't see you what happens when you truly lose all sense of community and you're only left with like individual interests trauma and strife and that's all that you're sort of battling for what happens when you lose your sense of linked fate or accountability to the people around you that's kind of like the late stage skinhead and i think like For Kanye, he is somebody who has lost all of those connections to authentic community. I think he's somebody that's surrounded by a lot of figures. Candace Owens is one of the ones that I talk about in the book who um, are not interested with a pretense of either community or democracy, but they want to blow it all up. And so that's the kind of what happens if we don't get our act together, essentially. And I, I think as I was writing this, It felt like Kanye was getting there. I think I held a certain amount of hope or nostalgia that there could be an interruption of that. And then as we've seen over the last like weeks and months, it feels like he's getting to that place of no return. And so, yeah, it it feels like the book in this odd way is even more resonant than I would have wanted it to be. And Kanye himself, of course, uh, you know, media figure now, a kind of technology figure, entrepreneur, apparently attempting Mm -hmm. to purchase a parlor, the sort of, <laughs> you know, fringe uh, social media platform that was mm-hmm. favored by supporters of, of Donald Trump. Um, and I do want to kind of bring in the sort of media and tech element of this, not just because this is the tech policy right. press podcast, but also because uh, like Kanye West, it is a underlying theme throughout the book. You write early on in the book, it's important for us to talk publicly about it and collectively understand why these sorts of fights for media ownership and tech accountability, which you've been part of leading, often take place at regulatory agencies like the FCC or FTC, while they matter as much as other justice fights like criminal and economic justice, I would even go so far as to say that without media justice, there is no chance for criminal or economic justice. How is media justice part of this book, or or how did you think of it uh, as one of the underlying themes? 
Yeah. I mean, I don't think if someone would have told me in the beginning that I was writing a media justice book, I would have necessarily thought that I was explicitly, but it has become so clear to me that the lessons learned from these fights that we've been in around the ability to have autonomy over our own communication structures and platforms, the ability to have at least an idea or pretense of a marketplace of ideas in order to like, you know, make our individual communities safer or us as a society safer by organizing against powerful institutions that seek to keep us divided and on the losing end of the economic cast. Like, I, I think that that ability to tell our own stories and our own words, you know, and all of the ways and fights that manifest in that quest. Like, ultimately, what we're trying to do is find ourselves in our community within society, within country, within, you know, community, um, this like broader community in order to be our fully realized selves and to achieve certain a certain amount of autonomy, freedom, and you know, economic liberation. I guess I'll just say that's a lot of woo-yah-yah words, but like I, I feel like that's what we're striving for. And how somebody frames us dictates what's possible for us in the policy realm. It dictates whether or not people that make decisions about our life see us as who we are or see us as the kind of like other threat that they have to keep on the other side of the door. And so like, for me, it's like, you know, media and tech justice fights. If we don't win those, then that means someone else is telling our story. It means like, you know, in the case of this cell of you know, Twitter to Elon Musk, as we're already seeing, like, I don't want to be so naive as to act like Twitter was ever this like fully realized democratized media space. It's always had, you know, gaps in it. But that transition from that era where you had, you know, the rise of the first wave of BLM, Arab Spring, Euromaid, and like these different like movements that were able to use tech and platforms like Twitter to speak to people like outside of those spaces not only are those days gone because of, you know, ad models, algorithmic segregation, number of other things, but now we see with the cell of of Twitter, um, somebody coming in who really wants to create this unambiguous pay to play space. Uh, and, And whether that's like people having to like pay for their blue checks, which we can have a lot of critiques of blue checks, but this idea that you like literally have to have the means and resources in order to maintain what is seen as a a mark of you being like credentialed or valid. And then what that means for then who is amplified, who gets to speak and the, the amount of resourcing that they have. When you see all of those things like kind of playing out, when you see like some of the mass amount of data that Musk is probably going to try to get even more than they already get from us in order to quote, authenticate people and get rid of bots and where that data and information may go, who it may be sold to. There's just like all of these ways in which any idea that we could have these like democratized communication spaces in order to move a truly liberatory agenda, they're like under attack right now. And it's it's the same thing when you look at Kanye trying to buy Parlor. It's the same thing when you look at Facebook's quest for global domination and the failure of institutions of government to actually adequately rein in and regulate these companies at scale. What we're looking at is like almost like what would have happened during the Gilded Age if there had been 
no alternative media to challenge and identify the struggles that we're experiencing. Like they're taking that away. And so we're in this gilded age and it's going to be, you know, by my estimation, a hell of a lot worse than the gilded ages we've experienced in the past. The book does contain a, kind of like a media history. Um, you go back in time, uh, you talk about the kind of creativity of Black people in adopting uh, media technologies, often as early adopters. You point out that, you know, in the 90s, the aughts, Black people created their own digital safe spaces, technological innovations, often to fill a void left by the traditional media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I- <laughs> I think part of this also goes back to like this idea. I would say nobody's in love with themselves more than journalists. Like I think journalists have such this idea that they've always been the saviors or gatekeepers of democracy. And there are cracks within that analysis in some spaces. But what's also true is like the whoever gets to like tell our story in our own words and to force public conversations on our own terms gets to like set the agenda in all of these other realms. And so, you know, and Joe Torres talks about this in the book, uh, just in general, Joe Torres over at Free Press, but um, Joseph Torres and Juan Gonzalez wrote this book, um, News for All the People, which was like one of my entry points into like the media justice work was like reading that book and having that be a game changer for me in terms of understanding how marginalized communities have consistently used media in order to like move society forward. And so when we think about like our ability to organize around an agenda that serves us, that's like the media justice fight. That's everything that we have been able to use and wield to have power. And it's true. Like, again, I talk about it for like black people, but when you look throughout history, you see this with like, you know, Jewish communities, you see this with like Italian and Irish communities in the early part of the 20th century organizing around like labor fights and rights. Um, You see this around LGBTQ communities like throughout history, but, you know, particularly we associate that with like, you know, those civil rights fights of the 70s. You see that within the feminist movement, like every movement led by people who are locked outside of power, who want to be seen as their authentic selves and have access to different spaces. The way in which those movements have been able to win to the extent they were able to win was through shared media and ability to like tell our own stories and shine a light on the injustices happening within our communities. You know, there are so many different aspects of this book that are media theory or kind of cultural consideration of aspects of media. You get into hip hop, of course, um, Mm -hmm. and you talk about drill as a phenomenon, and perhaps maybe we could just go down that path for a moment um, and maybe connect that back to some of these ideas. Yes. I mean, I think this is the other thing about it. (laughs) We talk about media justice and the importance of narrative and storytelling, and then we tend to do it in the most dry ways possible. And I think part we, we do that sometimes because we are so much in these like regulatory spaces. So it's like, you're not necessarily going to go to like the FCC and talk about why drill matters or, you know, you're, you're going to speak a certain way in these conversations. Right. And so I think sometimes we carry that over into our movement spaces. And so like, I, I tried with this book to be a bit like almost like media justice 101 and like centering, leading with narrative and leading with these like examples um, that can really help 
people feel and see, you know, what the issues are. And in the case of Drill, you know, one of the many aha moments that I had as I was researching the book and tried to write into the book was being able to contextualize the rise of Drill and the broader context context of what was happening globally. So music, right, music, culture, art has always been something that has politics embedded within it. And that is true of the rise of hip hop. It was initially like a very sort of political art form. A lot of the lyrics that you go back to, yeah, it's about party anthems, but like even little things like when they're like, you know, the roof, the roof is on fire. Like I I haven't been able to verify this, but like, according to urban legend where the roof is on fire comes from is like being in the Bronx when like buildings were like going up in flames um, because people were being like displaced. And so like uh, landlords and stuff were like setting fire to buildings. So it's like literally the roof is on fire. We don't need no water, let it burn. So it's like all these little political things. And so then I'm looking at drill and drill, uh, you know, emerges in out of Chicago in or around, you know, um, the 2000 era. And it's arriving at this time of like mass loss by the end of the, you know, 2008 recession, black people will have lost anywhere to 50 to 60% of black wealth. And many of that will come through mass land loss and Chicago, South side of Chicago, which had concentrated black wealth and land that was particularly profound. So people were seeing um, closing down of businesses. They were seeing churches get lost. They were seeing schools closed down, just this full on, you know, descent into the kind of like, you know, urban decay and this kind of like nightmare image that people already had of the South side of Chicago. Like people were like experiencing that. And at the same time that people are organizing around Occupy and talking about the housing crisis and the, and, and the concentration of wealth, you have this art form. And I describe it as kind of almost like a musical riot. It's not, you know, Occupy in a lot of ways was kind of intellectual, uh, you know, it was in a lot of ways, you know, not completely, but it was led by a lot of people that were connected, you know, had access to the internet, who had access to the internet then and now it's, you know, tends to be people of a certain class. It was like students occupying camps, like it, it had all of these different elements to it, not all the way through. But, you know, for me, I think drill music was a form of talking about what was happening in a way that didn't feel neat, that didn't feel clean, that didn't feel like protesty in a way we're comfortable with protest rhetoric, but was definitely talking about the need to like preserve our spaces through these kind of like different like sort of gang affiliations. And um, and so, yeah, I, I, I like talk about that as a way for us instead of Looking at this music, it's also one of the most surveilled musical art forms right now. It's constantly censored on YouTube and like in other spaces. People are arrested based on their lyrics um, or start to be monitored based on on their lyrics. And what's the kind of quirk of that is usually if you're a successful music artist, that kind of means you've moved away from certain spaces because you're you're doing this like art form. But, you know, the way in which it's like under surveillance, censored and all of these other things part of what I'm saying in that analysis is that we also have to look at why do people feel this angry? Why do people feel this loss? Why do people feel like they have to like protect their communities? It's because of this mass land loss. So look at the system's failures and like, what are we doing about those things? And if we're not doing anything to fix those things, what are the darker spaces that we're going to lead to? And in a lot of ways, I think we're seeing that through a number of ways being unleashed globally right now. 
I kind of want to take this back to, to Kanye a little bit because you kind of, you know, take us back to 2005, this moment after Katrina, which maybe to some extent is like the most uh, extreme version of what you're talking about, of, of mm-hmm. kind of like a devastation of a black community. And, you know, Kanye kind of emerges as a sort of, I don't know, um, spokesperson almost for something that a lot of people are feeling. Um, you, you, point out his famous words, of course, George Bush doesn't care about black people in this consideration of portrayals of of black suffering in the media. It's an interesting moment of politicization. Would that be the right word? Of people getting really political in a way that I don't think I realized until hindsight for a couple of different reasons. One, because I actually in fall of 2000 moved to London and lived there for a couple of years. So I think I missed a lot of different things um, like the starts of Color of Change, an organization I used to work for and a number of other sort of black led organizations. It's also kind of pre mass saturation of social media platforms and some of the ones that we regularly use. I'm not even sure existed then or it was in the early days. Like, And I feel like I was still on my space. I don't even think I got on Facebook until I was back in the States. And so we didn't necessarily have these like broad levels of discourse and information moving quite as fast as it is um, today. So like a soundbite could kind of last a little bit longer than it does right now. But Kanye comes out and he he talks about um, within that speech, he actually talks about the failures of media. A lot of that gets lost. We talk about the George Bush doesn't care about black people. But, you know, what he's saying in the speech is that, you know, the media, when they see white people wading through the waters in Hurricane Katrina, they're saying they're finding food. When they see black people, the media is saying that they're looting. You know, the media is it, it, through its rhetoric and narrative is giving law enforcement and people, you know, acting outside of the orders of law enforcement, giving them permission to literally gun black people down in our communities. And I'm heartbroken over this. Like that's, that's essentially what he's saying. And um, that critique of media doesn't last nearly as long as the critique of, you know, President Bush. But I think that really landed with a lot of people who did feel locked outside of media or locked outside of this story. And, and one of the things that was interesting about even the interviews that I did with black voters because I interviewed like black leftists. I interviewed black MAGA people. I interviewed people, you know, even in that drill chapter, you know, one of the people in it, Vic, um, I'm not sure if I left this in there, but he explicitly says he doesn't vote because it's not going to do anything for him. And he repeatedly calls president Bush, the feds, which I thought, I mean, president Obama, the feds, which I thought was interesting on a number of different levels, but like no matter what political identity they were part of a lot of the black people that I interviewed of a certain age named Katrina as a radicalizing moment for them. So there were like black Republicans that said, seeing how much we were like abandoned during Hurricane Katrina made me realize that government is never going to show up for us. And so we have to lean towards building out our capital. And I don't want big government. I want guns to protect my community. I want businesses and I want to build my own economy. And then you heard people on the left saying like, you know, Hurricane Katrina was a radicalizing moment for me because I saw how corrupt the system was. I saw, you know, the corrupt policing and um, I saw the failures of government to provide the social safety nets that we need to survive like climate disasters and a number of other disasters. And that's what brought me to the left. So it was really interesting for me to talk to a number of black people in the U S 
and realized that particularly between a certain age range, that was such a politicizing moment. Cause I feel like for a lot of people outside of that space, it was like a hot, it was like a moment. It was a Kanye moment. Um, you know, maybe people think of Hurricane Katrina as this broad, like climate change, you know, disaster, especially after naming climate disaster capitalism. But I don't know how many people understand it to be this like uniquely black politicizing moment. And in a lot of ways, fracturing our politics, because in both instances, people are seeing people of both political parties not showing up for black people. You know, in some ways, I guess that aspect of the book that deals with, uh, you know, these questions, you you deal a lot with kind of precarity, economic precarity. And I think that kind of, you know, was exposed in Katrina uh, and Mm -hmm. just how precarious the situation really was underneath um, and how it was sort of left that way in many ways. But you get at this in a bunch of different ways. And one is a section on OnlyFans, um, <laughs> which, uh, you know, is, is one of, you know, a number of other kind of, I, I guess, kind of media queries. Um, but maybe I'll launch you in that direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. I feel bad because I do these podcasts that for whatever reason, I don't know why I just get super intense, but I actually do want to take this moment to say that there is some levity in the book. I do. I, I maybe think I'm funnier than some people, but I mean, I, I try to bring like these kind of absurd moments as because I don't necessarily want to read a book that even though I lead with like one of the most traumatizing moments of my life, I didn't necessarily want to write a book that just the whole time you're just like angry or or feeling disempowered. Um, And so like, you know, one of the things that I did in the course of writing the book uh, starts from like a really serious place. And that is, I wanted to talk about what I identify as like the kind of like black feminist political identity and the black skinhead within that. And so I I didn't want to write this book without talking to sex workers because sex workers particularly like in general are at the front lines of any number of economic fights. But right now, particularly in the tech space, uh, sex workers are under attack or involved in a lot of different fights. And so whether that's, you know, fights around, the ability to have control over your own image. So, you know, for porn people, sometimes what happens is people will take a clip of the porn video and they'll circulate it and they'll completely remove the person's name and all of these things from it. They don't have an ability to, you know, make money off of it or even to own their identity within that. Like you see most social media platforms and particularly payment platforms usually start with a history of sex work and people needing to like exchange funding through these kind of like anonymized ways. And you see these different platforms perfectly fine with them being spaces for sex workers until they hit the saturation point of crossing over. And then they want to apply all of these kind of like, I don't know, like uh, Christian family, like puritanical values to their like policy making about it in a way that displaces sex workers. And then you see a lot of increased censorship of, you know, um, sex workers. Uh, and so like, I, I wanted to talk to somebody and I did that thing where you go on Twitter and you're like, Hey, sex workers, I'd love to talk to you. And I got like a t- lot of DMs that were kind of like, girl, I'm not going to out myself as a sex worker, but I feel you, good luck to you or, you know, different things like that. But I couldn't, I couldn't really get a lot of interviews with people. And so finally I just picked two porn actresses whose work I'm a fan of. And I decided to like go on OnlyFans and like reach, reach out to them. And well, let me say who's 
I'm, I'm a fan of their work as advocates as well as their other work. And so like I went and reached out to them. I went out to OnlyFans. I'd never been on there. It's like, it's obvious. It's in the name, right? It's OnlyFans. Obviously it's about creating this like intimate environment with their fans, but I was naive. I didn't know that. So I like go on there, pay the amount of money, reach out to them. And I wasn't expecting it to be such a dynamic experience. So like I'm getting photos, all sorts of like, uh, you know, photos of, of people and offers to do like any number of things on video. And then I'm like, Hey, so I'd love to talk to you about your politics and your experience. I'm writing this book. Uh, and so I, I was trying to like write this thing that felt like it got to the point. And I asked my good friend uh, to help me with it. And he sent me like this long text and I didn't, I didn't edit it. So I just cut and pasted it. And so basically I ended up reaching out to these two women and being like, Hey, like, instead of being like, I don't want to make things weird, but I'd love to interview you. I, I say to them, Hey, I I'd love to make things really weird for you get in touch with me. And so like, after I realized that it happened, I was like, oh, I'm going to get kicked off. And I don't know, the OnlyFans police are going to come to my house. I don't know. But like one of the women actually wrote back and we were able to have this amazing conversation. I actually wish, I, I hope to write or release more of it because a lot of the tech stuff got out of it. But we were talking about deep fakes. We were talking about the future of cryptocurrency. We were talking about her work around, she works with um, NorCal ACLU around a number of issues around like surveillance and privacy and um, anti-censorship. And it was just like getting able to present that story and that person as somebody that also has stakes in this like tech justice fight that we engage in. That was definitely one of my favorite parts of the book. Well, it's extraordinary that you know you you went to those links, um, and I'm I'm Anything sure there was a story. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let me let me. I don't want to distract the listener from the core themes of the book by pushing you in the direction of these media and, and tech uh, themes. Um, let's spend just a minute on uh, you know kind of the the experience of Black conservatives. Um, you call out specifically this movement of conscious black conservatives, uh, which mm-hmm. I found very interesting. The idea of the Republican Party as an empty vessel there for the taking uh, mm-hmm. was one that stood out to me. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about that, about what you learned talking to black people who were supporters of Donald Trump or supporters more generally of some of the direction that he would like to take the country into. What did you learn and what do you think it tells us about tomorrow? Yeah. So, I mean, there were a few things that I learned. So one, I I think going back to this idea of what does it mean to truly build consensus for the greater good? Like, I think we have these things right now around how we want bipartisanship. We want people to civility. We want like all of these things, but like civility is not justice. Civility is not equity. And when we look throughout history, I think when people had sort of shared spaces what it meant to build consensus looked a little different than it did today. And so throughout history, throughout the history of Black media, you have had, you know, Black Republicans and Black Democrats working together or, you know, trying to organize together or occupying space in newspapers together around like an economic agenda. And 
in the modern era, we don't have that anymore. And so when people are at the same level, so when people go online looking for community, like black people don't find other black people and have a conversation about like, how do we build a black agenda for economic power? Instead, people that are like the data, your data body is identified as a Republican. It takes you in this direction. Your data body identifies you as, you know, whatever it identifies you as you go further down that rabbit hole. And then we don't necessarily have shared spaces like churches or businesses where we can reconcile those things. So point one that I learned was that because of those divisions, you know, people were not able to like see the humanity in each other. So like, even when I was talking to black MAGA people, like they had all of this, like fear of these like unhinged socialists that are going to like go off and ruin the country. And it was like these complete, like one dimensional ideas about what that was and whether, and, and feeling like they were the only ones that were actually working in service of a pro-Black agenda, which I thought was interesting. Two, there's like no one way into Black MAGA, which I mean, I guess that's probably true across the board, but I, I found people that have been conservatives before Trump and didn't even necessarily like Trump as a figure, but um, felt like if that was attracting people to a conversation about the working class and trade and economics, that they were willing to take that. I found some people who saw Trump as like a third party onto himself and who felt like his ability to disrupt politics as usual was something that they were looking for. And so they gravitated towards him as a figure, but didn't necessarily see themselves as Republicans. There were some people that were drawn to Republicanism and MAGA through a family values frame and feeling like Black families are under attack in these interesting pathologizing ways, but interesting nonetheless. And then there were some people that were hardcore libertarians that were like, to me, it's not about the family values. It's not about like all of this. I feel like the only way that Black people can be free is by like building our capital. And so I'm supporting the political people who are like removing, you know, government bureaucracy from our lives so we could do that. And so these people were like a hodgepodge of figures and yet they had found community with each other. So they were kind of able to build an agenda for what they wanted, but it was separate from like a broader black agenda. So I thought that was really interesting. Also not all black Republicans are built alike. A lot of the media oxygen goes towards people like Herschel Walker, Kanye West, Candace Owens. I write a chapter talking about that type of grifter, what I call avatar Black conservatism, where it's like a Black face used to launder white nationalist talking points. And then I show that in contrast to people who see conservatism as a vehicle for a pro-Black agenda, especially through local politics, and um, people who feel like they don't necessarily like the national um, Republican Party, but that there aren't the resources or infrastructure to create a third party. And so most Black Democrats run unopposed in like predominantly black districts. And so an easy way in that's the empty vessel is to like run as a Republican and then to use that to like push back against the party and then also forward a black agenda. So, I mean, it was, I came away with it um, with, you know, at least more sympathy or empathy than I had going into it around who those folks are. Um, At the time I wrote the book, it was kind of this big hypothetical. And then in 20, I finished writing the book in December, 2021. And then in 2022, a historic number of black Republicans ran for office. I think over 30 are running for Congress. A lot of them, I think are on unserious elections, but because the bar is so low, uh, we could potentially see the most black Republicans in Congress than we've seen since the reconstruction era. And so I think that will force a lot of questions around 
what does that mean in terms of how people within the Congressional Black Caucus may think about working together to thwart agendas that do not forward economic autonomy at scale? Like, what does that mean in terms of people that are Republicans but are representing districts where working class people have truly seen mass amounts of loss? So it's not somebody that's like representing a suburban mom who just wants to feel safe in her bubble and they can come on the floor and say whatever and and have a social media spectacle, but people for whom they have a certain amount of accountability back home how does that change the way they they engage in bipartisan politics? Like that's some of the stuff that I think we'll see in November. You say in the book that you would probably place yourself uh, somewhere in the disillusioned liberalism, black Marxist, black feminist realm. Uh, <laughs> perhaps that describes uh, your politics. It depends on the day and what someone has done to piss me off. You right. <laughs> um, <laughs> what uh, what. Do you think this book is kind of a warning uh, in, in some ways? Is, is Was that intended? Yes. I mean, it, it is intended to be a warning. It's, it's intended to, again, like I keep going back to this thing of like, one, I think identity politics matter. And I, I say this as somebody who has occupied like a lot of spaces where we're having a lot of conversations around quote unquote, woke culture and, uh, you know, how that's harmful to sort of leftist causes and this idea that we should take like a, you know, race or ethnic neutral approach to talking about economic justice issues. And even again, even though I'm like focused on the black community, I think when you look throughout history, identity politics has been a potent activator for, you know, economic struggles and people coming together for their community. And so it's a, it's a warning for us not to forget about that. Like, even when we talk about these like romanticized rainbow coalitions of the sixties, it's like, you know, the black Panthers coming together with the young Patriots coming together with the feminists and, you know, all of that, like the black Panthers weren't telling the young Patriots not to be young Patriots and the young Patriots weren't telling the black Panthers not to be black Panthers. There was an economic agenda and people organized within their community. And so like, I, I wanted to peel back the layer on that. I also think ultimately, as I said, I see this as a media justice book and a, you know, tech justice book and a little bit of a sneaky antitrust book as well. And it's, it is really saying when we lose control of independently owned media we are losing our voice. We are losing our ability to move an agenda. We are trying to have a conversation about how to move an agenda in someone else's house on someone else's terms of service in ways that allow for us to be like, you know, segregated in any number of ways that allow for amplification of wedge speech that drive us apart and that we have to pay attention to what's happening at the FTC. We have to pay attention to what's happening. We can't even get an active FCC. Like if somebody had told me that like Gigi Son could not get confirmed to the FCC like five years ago, like I would have laughed at you. And the fact that we have like a neutered FCC means that there's a lot of communications issues that are getting like unresolved right now. Um, You know, if the midterms go in the way that some people are predicting, the FTC will be probably also hindered in a number of ways. And so it is a warning that it's like these things that seem like boring regulatory issues, if we're not paying attention to them, our ability to tell this like big story to move us towards where we want to get to will be taken away from us. You write in your conclusion that your 
nightmare is that we will inevitably live in President Mark Zuckerberg's America, a place where essential government services are turned over to Silicon Valley whiz kids and managed by a consultant class charged with delivering basic needs. So I guess that kind of dystopian future is the place where you imagine this kind of convergence of extremist elements might happen. Uh, if in fact we continue to go in the direction of the sort of future that Silicon Valley seems to want, that it may in fact be our undoing. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think maybe now it might be like President Musk instead. I mean, the, the, the figure or President Sandberg, who knows? But I mean, yes, I think, I think we're moving further and further towards this idea of this like manufactured concept of rugged individualism, which I think we're in love with as an idea, but really takes us pretty far away from being able to chip away at inequities. And I was thinking, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I, so this is the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. I had not watched The Godfather movies in a really long time. Uh, and so I, I binge watched Godfathers 1 and 2, like three, I actually like three more than most people, but I, I didn't have the bandwidth for that. But it was a really interesting, I forgot that there was like this element of storytelling that was about the building of the mafia and these families through this idea of like, identity politics and the godfather comes to power because he sees like the black hand taking advantage of these like local communities and he's like this is not right this man is taking money out of our pockets he's starving us we're not getting anything in return he gets rid of him he emerges as this godfather he build they build out this like family structure you know i'm i'm romanticizing so obviously there's a lot of like shooting and stuff like that but then the son comes along who like want so bad to be seen as American, like not Italian, but like he wants this access to this idea of being an American. So he goes into the military, becomes this businessman, and he treats this business that his father built as a family, as a business. And by the end of it, not only has he like killed all of these people, he starts killing his own actual family and he's alone. And I was like, damn, that's what we're, we're, we're about to be like Michael Corleone at the end of Godfather 2, just like sitting in a chair by ourselves after we killed our brother Fredo and everybody else. And then we don't have anybody. And that's the future that I fear that I think we're heading towards. Quite a place to end. We could probably spend another hour talking about <laughs> The Godfather. Um, and I don't know if you saw uh, part three, the sort of re-edited version, or if you saw the original edit. Um, I was, but... Well, I saw they changed the name of it, right? So I didn't, I didn't, so they re, that's why they changed the name of it because they re-edited it. Oh no, maybe I should watch it. They had to distinguish it, of course, from the prior one. Um, mm. I'm, I'm sad to tell you it's not much improved on okay. the original <laughs> episode three. Um, that's a good place for us perhaps to stop. Uh, we'll, we'll come back together and talk about that at another time. Um, Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future by Brandy Collins Dexter. I hope folks will read it um, and I hope we'll get to talk about these issues again. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.